gets old to me for some reason. Probably gets old to all of you out there. Ed Nail brought to us this morning by Manchester Mayor Ted Gatsis. He says that the city is undergoing a renaissance, and he's crafted a blueprint to harness that energy. Number one in the blueprint, taxes and spending. He will veto any budget that breaks the tax cap and will fight vigorously to keep your tax rate from skyrocketing. Learn more about the mayor's 12-point plan to harness Manchester's current energy at uh, com slash planned. That's I like it already. com slash planned. Well, well, you is know. Is that number one on the plan? That is actually number one. That, there you go. All right, that, that's all you need to know. You don't need two, three, four, five. That's just icing on the icing on the yeah. jimmies on the cake. Yeah. Well, you know, you think we were talking about Amazon, though. You think that Amazon is going to take a look at its total, you know, its total tax burden, too, right? You know? Property taxes, business profits tax, business enterprise tax. You got to take a look at their tax burden, and I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to bet that they, uh, you know, they're going to look at first of all what they get for the taxes they pay. Right. But secondly, they're going to see that the taxes they pay are proportional um, to their to their cost structure. Right. And then they're going to negotiate. And then they're going to negotiate. Yes. I don't think this one will be a seventy nine e though. Do you? No. <laughs> this will right. be a domination. By a, an evil corporation. <laughs> Ed Nail is the chairman of the Coalition in Hampshire Taxpayers and anchor of our question of voter fraud segment. Why? Because since 1990, he's been showing the scoundrels for what they are, liars, thieves, and cheats. Uh, and he's been doing it for the last five years here on the Dry Large Radio Show. And while daring people to uh, uh, you know, accuse him of voter intimidation, he is yet to be accused. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. If it is intimidation to out somebody for voting illegally you would think i would get at least a phone call or some sort of a letter from an attorney that i could hang on my wall <laughs> hey, uh, i have a case here it's called uh, baker versus young Bar- i'm sorry barker versus young barker versus as in bob barker it's, yeah it's a guy named barker and he was going to run for senate and somebody i think it was uh, some some organization said well you're you're not a citizen you haven't been a citizen for uh for uh, seven years it's what for united states senate for, or state uh, senate, state senate here in New Hampshire. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Article Twenty Eight. Uh, provided, nevertheless, no person shall be capable of being elected a senator who is not the age of thirty years, and who shall not have been an inhabitant of the state for seven years immediately preceding this election. At it the seems time, to be thereof. a guy named Fergus Cullen had that problem too. Yeah, yeah and he had voted in Connecticut. They voted in Connecticut. Well, it's perfectly legal for anybody else except Fergus to do that, but he has that hasn't caught on to him yet. <laughs> um, and therefore, uh, he shall be an inhabitant pay attention to the word, of the district for which he shall be chosen. That's the Constitution Part uh, Article 28. That that happened to Don Winterton uh, two years ago when he was going to run for the the state Senate. And uh, yeah, he had had been a Florida resident for a period of time. And And Delaware, too, I think, maybe. Yeah, one of the two. But that's what happens. It comes up. They say, well, how long were you an inhabitant? Mm -hmm, Which mm -hmm. the law says. And the question, here's what the court says. Uh, They're summing this thing up so if you could read the whole case and there's parts of the case and this is the part i'm interested in the question turns upon the meaning of the word inhabitant okay as used in article 28 to describe the qualifications of a senator the same word is used in each of the two preceding articles to describe the qualification of the voters uh, like use is made of each in the three succeeding articles these are all articles of the constitution that the word is thus used was intended as a designation of citizenship and cannot be seriously doubted. The justices of the court so advised the legislature in 1835. (laughs) Opinion of the judges. Uh, Citizenship Uh, is an implied 
disqualification. Oh, no. So okay. this is a standing court precedent in the state of New Hampshire. From 1922. From 1922. So never this, been overturned. No. Never this, been never been um, uh, uh, countermanded. Yeah. Never been never been changed by state law. We've never amended a constitution that I know of to change that. So in the old days, the uh, Supreme Court used to follow the law and follow uh, the weaning of the words involved. But now we have the Superior Court nitwit uh, judge, uh, uh, what's this, Lewis, Judge Screwy Lewis, who's no longer Lewis. a judge here in New Hampshire, yeah. he uh, he reinterpreted it to allow non-residents to vote so, uh, so-called so legally. Legally, yes. Yeah, so when you actually look at this, I went down uh, last week after this show, I went down to the Supreme Court Law Library, and I pulled a bunch of cases. I actually pulled some on the right to know law for you. I think it'll be oh, very exciting. Thank you. About, um, let me see, what do they call it, uh, lawyer-client privilege. Oh! I got a case for you. Is, is that what you just handed yeah, me? Yeah, and it's out of New Hampshire Practice and Procedure. So oh, okay. anybody listening out there, you know, lawyers do a lot of talking, and not all of them make a lot of sense. But we have this volume of books down at this law library. It's called New Hampshire Practice and Procedure. And if you're an attorney and you're going to practice out of some area of your expertise, you would immediately waddle on down there or pull up your copy of New Hampshire Practice and Procedure mm-hmm. and look up whatever you're going to do. Like if you're normally doing divorces and you, somebody asks you to do a zoning case, mm-hmm. you could find out how zoning works and how courts perceive zoning laws. And it's written in English. It's <laughs> very easy to read. And then as you go through, they point out these cases. So I went up and I knew I knew about the cases. I just didn't have them in my hot little hands. And I pulled up the Every versus Madison. Every versus Madison. A guy named Every. Okay. And he was a teacher in Massachusetts. Right, school teacher, public. He'd been there for quite some time, so he and his family moved to Meredith, New Hampshire, whereupon his wife now lives. His son went to school, private school, but he went to school in New Hampshire. Their driver's license, their house is in New Hampshire. They live in New Hampshire. Have New Hampshire bank accounts. Phone phone records are there. Uh, he belongs to some fraternal organizations. Everything involving him is in Madison, New Hampshire, except one thing. He drives down to Massachusetts and stays there for the week while he's teaching. Mm-hmm. And then he drives back. Yeah. So the Madison. Well, see, he drives back to that place. His home. That, uh, his, uh, that, that place to which he returns after a temporary absence. Correctamundo. Oh, correctamundo. That's the Spanish version. Yeah. That- <laughs> so he drives his New Hampshire car with his New Hampshire driver's license back to his New Hampshire home. <laughs> and he intended to vote in New Hampshire. And the Madison uh, check, supervisor's checklist said, Excuse me, but you're in Massachusetts 140 days a year, so you're actually a Massachusetts resident. You are domiciled in Massachusetts. So he went to court. The Superior Court said, yeah, he's a citizen of the state of New Hampshire. He's an inhabitant of New Hampshire. He's domiciled here. You don't have a case. So the Madison crowd appealed it to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court said all of his intentions, all of the documents he has show he's domiciled, he's an inhabitant, he's a resident mm-hmm. of the state of New Hampshire. You So lose. he's kind of like that Let college student that when uh, maybe there's a long weekend or a, a, a vacation break or they're in between uh, years, you know, summer off, they, they go back to the place they well, they're, came from and yeah. so the driver's say, license that they have and the license plate on their car and where they're actually really registered to vote and oh you have what you have is a mirror image in reverse so if he's there in massachusetts 140 days out of the year teaching who's he teaching Mm -hmm. students so if you're a student and you're here from out of state for 140 days that doesn't actually mean you're a resident of new hampshire and the supreme court looked at this in this uh this 1984 
this is the first case I ever talked to Bill Gardner about. Mm-hmm. He kind of steered me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. He, he told me there was a case in Meredith about uh, Meredith. I'm sorry, Madison. 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 There was this case in Madison about this, and I went and looked it up. That's mm-hmm. what I found. It's the reverse of what he told me. He told me the teacher could, could uh, vote wherever they taught. And I thought, okay, I, be- I kind of believed him until I got to the law library and found that out. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, that was like 1988 well, when I first ran to him. That's why they say, Ed, reading is Reading believing. is fundamental, yeah. Yeah, I, find I just had this conversation with my daughter yesterday about, well, you know, there's what somebody says about something, and then there's what's written about something. And I don't care what anybody says, what's written will always carry it remains. the day. That's why I love to read stuff by the Founding Fathers. Oh, they didn't. They didn't talk on the radio. You they didn't are, have telephones or cell phones. You are radical. They wrote everything down. Well, yeah, it's because pen and paper were the only mechanism they had to communicate. And then how did it get somewhere? They didn't just drop in a mailbox. It had to go by horse or boat yep. or some way. Pony Express. So whatever you wrote down was important, right? <laughs> you just didn't scribble things off on your internet. Clickety clickety send. Right. It was more complicated than that. So I love I love reading that stuff. But I also like reading New Hampshire Practice and Procedure. <laughs> I like reading court cases where the court makes sense. So the court in 1922 said it'd be, you know, nonsensical to say inhabitant means anything other than a citizen of the state of New Hampshire. Right. Now, our Supreme Court could do that now and put all this domicile stuff to bed. Well, don't they consider themselves bound by precedent unless there's some stirring cause to break the precedent because it was uh, improperly founded? Correct. They always say, if if you look at precedent, stuff like, and the meaning of words. Meaning That's of another words. thing. When you go to statutory construction, we have a law in New Hampshire called RSA 21-6. It says resident, resident means someone who is domiciled in the state of New Hampshire. <laughs> That's called statutory construction, and you use those words when you're writing laws. So in most of the court cases, they mention that. But the only other way to not address domicile by the Supreme Court is for the idiot from the attorney general's office to stipulate before the case that Domicile means residence, and residence means something. Uh, domicile is you can have multiples. Well, yeah, but right. you can only have one residence. Because you can establish a presence. Yeah, so, can, a presence. So, so our attorney general's arguing this, uh, the representative, yeah. Stephen Lobotomy, yeah. stipulated ahead of time in the case the op- <coughs> that the meanings of the words were the opposite of what they are. So the court never had to address them, and they didn't challenge it. They just, but that, that does not the court, though, do, do not the judges have some responsibility when you know someone is clearly making a wrongheaded argument that comports to no historical jurisprudence whatsoever to say, uh, sorry, let's play whack-a-mole, and your head is on the, head, uh, on the receiving end of my gavel. That's the question I put myself to bed with every night. Why would the Supreme Court just say, hey, Steve, that's a stupid way to interpret domicile. It's the opposite of what's in the law library. Yeah. Well, I guess the court would say, well, listen, we're, the, we're not the prosecutor. We're not, we're not the one pushing it. We can only determine based on what we're presented and not, you know, not argue the case for the state. If you look at any case the New Hampshire Supreme Court looks at, it says this case t- uh, turns on the definition of, and the last one that was in the, you can go look it up now, one of the most recent cases is the definition of willful. Mm-hmm. And the first thing the court does is look at the definition of willful in Webster's Dictionary. If they did that with domicile and didn't just say, okay, Steve, domicile you can have a lot of, but you can only have one residence. <laughs> and, and like in 1922, the court said, if it says inhabitant, citizen, you know, domicile, domiciliary, it all means the same thing, a person who is legally in the state. If they just did that, but they won't do it. And that's the crux of this whole thing. So uh, it's fun to pick these out because I'm going to post them. Our website's being rebuilt. 
So Jane, oh. Jane, our webmaster, is redoing the website, and I'm going to have a lot I of know. these things. I up. know, Ed, Ed, it's 2017. Jane, unless you know they're going through some gender identity crisis, cannot be your webmaster. Oh, she's the webmistress of the dark. Webmistress, yes, yes. She must be the webmistress. Yep, she is uh, revamping our website, and <laughs> we will have these documents here. You can read them for yourselves. You can pick out the parts where I'm wrong, and you can call the radio program and say, "Oh, you've misread this," or you can say. Aha, I understand. We've been ripped off. And it starts with Claremont. Same thing. Claremont decision was the same thing. We don't have an education clause in our in our Constitution. Never have. We'd never put one in. We'd be stupid if we did. But when you look at these things, you go, this is how the court gets its way when you have an activist court. And you have an attorney general's office that also was involved in, in, in parts of this. Luckily, mm-hmm. Steve Lobotomy is gone. He's found employment somewhere else. So talk to me about what you found in the right to know law. I know you handed me a, a document oh, here. Oh, let's, let's read it together. That let's way, sh- we can, Shall we read it together? Why not? All right. It, I, this is basically about uh, billing. Billing? Billing. Okay. Yeah. And it says, attorney. this is uh, Chapter 736 of uh, New Hampshire Local Government Law from New Hampshire Practice and Procedure. Uh, attorney building, building records new. This is a new... Uh, some new decisions at the very bottom on your first page. Yep. While there's no question that the right to know law exempts from disclosure certain records pertaining to confidential information, the determination of whether information is confidential for purposes of right to know law has to be assessed objectively, <clears throat> not subjectively, okay. uh, of the party generating the information. Even if records are deemed to be confidential, oh, Weren't yours deemed to be confidential? Attorney-client privilege. Uh, They are not per se exempt from disclosure. To determine whether uh, records are exempt as confidential, the benefits of disclosure to the public must be weighed against the benefits of the non-disclosure to the government. Oh, and since the only benefit of non-disclosure to the government is to protect the uh, guilty uh, elected official. Correct. Mm -hmm. The party resisting disclosure, that would be... Members of the school committee. Well, in this case, it would be the attorney who is invoking the privilege on who, our behalf. Who gave that? Who gave them the, the the goods to do that? Right. The party resisting disclosure must prove that disclosure is likely to one impair the information holder's ability to obtain necessary information in the future. Not applicable. Okay. Well, no, it's not good. I mean, well, here's the, the thing: par- the party redis- resisting disclosure must prove that the disclosure is likely to impair the information holders. That would be the board. Mm-hmm. The ability to obtain necessary information in the future won't do that. Well, it's kind of what the... Well, let's go to the next one. To cause substantial harm to the competitive position of the person from whom the information was obtained. Not applicable. Okay. So therefore, those two two clauses don't apply. Therefore, there's nothing stopping the release of the information. This test emphasizes the potential harm that was result from disclosure. Who would be harmed? Uh, The elected official. The person you were talking about in this case wouldn't mm-hmm. be about a contract right. or bidding or a lawsuit or personal or records of, of a student no, or uh, jury jury information. It would be about a public official who acted in a in a public uh, in, in in the uh, capacity right. in their in their public capacity rather than simply promises of confidentiality or whether the information was has customarily been regarded as confidential. The burden of proving whether information is confidential rests with the party seeking non-disclosure. So it's questionable as to whether or not the attorney can just sit there and say, oh, attorney-client privilege because I gave you advice. Yeah, and the other thing is, what, what public good does it do to ask your attorney? You didn't ask your attorney for confidential information. Mm-hmm. He didn't no. have to t- take testimony of a witness. Like Normally this would be, I'm going to go to somebody on the road crew and ask him whether or not the road agent was sleeping in the truck. 
So this is the, the attorney-client privilege would say, oh, I'm going to protect that witness in non-public session from telling us whether or not the road agent was a sound asleep or drinking on the job. That would be protecting confidentiality. Mm-hmm. But when you ask your attorney to give us the facts of a case where one of the school board members who's not exempt from 91A was releasing non-public information, that's not a public good. All right. Now you have something else here on uh, the last page that's highlighted. Uh, what, what's that? Because we're almost, well, we're, we're up on the call. That was it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Very good. So there you have it, folks. Ed Nail, once again, doing what uh, people who read do finding stuff that other people don't want them to know. Ed, as always, thanks for being with us here on the Drought Large Radio uh, Show. Thank you for giving me the 20 minutes. <laughs> we take a break for traffic, weather, sports. We'll be back with the news.